Well, good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with all of you. See some familiar faces from over the years. Uh, very uh, grateful for your kindness and uh, for your warm hospitality. I can't say so much uh, the same for your pastor, but uh, <laughs> we're making it. Yesterday, we went to lunch, and as soon as we sat down, he ordered his food. And so I turned to him afterwards and said, you know, usually when I take somewhere that they've never been before, I give them at least two minutes to look at the menu. <laughs> you can tell a lot about a guy's character <laughs> by antics like that. I'm, I am uh, very grateful uh, to be here and just to say that James has been a very good friend to me. And... Um, there's, I know a lot of pastors and not a lot of guys I can just be myself around all the time, and, and he truly is one. And I know it's not going to come with any, uh, any baggage because I have plenty on him. So uh, <laughs> it works uh, for both of us. But I do want to uh, also say that um, uh, the church uh, that I pastor now, Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, we have prayed for you guys, and uh, I bring you up at our Wednesday night prayer meetings, and uh, you, uh, you've been asked about, and so now I can go back and let them know how things are going, and uh, we praise God for the work that's going on here. Well, this morning I want to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2, and our focus is going to be on verse uh, 10, but we'll, uh, we'll consider a larger portion to get us into it. Now, in the, the Western world, in the 20th century, and certainly coming into the 21st century, but in the 20th century, one of the most dominant philosophical positions was what we call existentialism. And you've most likely heard of that before. But one of the primary existential philosophers was a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre had a lot of unreasonable things to say. But one of his driving philosophies... And really, the primary idea behind existentialism is his famous quote, existence precedes essence. Now, I know that means a whole lot to you. What does that mean? It means what I do determines who I am. The things that I do make me to be the person that I am. Perhaps you've heard that before. It's actually a very popular philosophy, and people use it all the time today in attempts to encourage young people to achieve great things and to aim for high goals. It usually comes out sounding like this. You're probably more familiar with a statement like this. You can be anything that you want to be. In other words, your actions determine your being. Now, the best-intentioned people say these kinds of things, and they mean something like, work hard, keep after the things that you're doing, and if you have a goal, shoot for it, and as long as you keep after it and you keep working hard, you will get there eventually. And that sounds encouraging. But for many of us, actually, uh, especially if you're in your 30s or younger, you've heard that so much in your entire life, it's just sort of a cliche thing to hear. Now, notice there's never any discussion in those conversations about aptitude or gifts, just goals and achievements. I once had a preacher who does a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, he does a lot of uh, preaching in conferences, and he goes to college campuses a lot, and he told me, 
when I go to college campuses, I always know who the freshmen are because I'll ask them, what is your major? And they say, I'm pre-med. And that's not to say something of some of those freshmen that may be pre-med and may go on to medical school, but the majority of them won't. They have been told their whole lives, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you work hard enough. But the reality is when you're getting C's in biology and you're struggling to get through pre-algebra your freshman year, we need to talk about aptitude and gifts. You have a far greater ability to do something great and something helpful by working at and sticking to the things that you're good at instead of chasing a dream that just doesn't fit. Now, that's not a popular thing to say. You're not going to hear that in a graduation speech. But it's okay to admit that there are some things that you are good at, and there are some things that you will never be good at. And maybe some things that you're just awful at doing. We aren't all made to be the same, and that is a wonderful thing. It shows God's creative design. It shows how we can live together in a wonderfully diverse culture of people. We need doctors, and we need musicians, and painters, and bankers, and engineers, and stay-at-home moms, and philosophers, and writers, and some might even argue Federal Reserve employees. <laughs> I hear the benefits are great. But that's a hard thing to reason through, because your whole life, especially if you're younger, you've been raised on this existential idea. Existence precedes essence. I can do whatever I want to do based on all the things that I think I want to be. Now, in more recent years, the cliche has turned into something far more troubling than the idea that you can achieve your goals and keep after them. Existentialism is actually the root of the radical sexual perversions that we see today. Men saying that they're women, or women saying that they are men, or people saying they're non-binary and wanting to be referred to as they and them, or she and jur, instead of being male or female, as they were born to be, as God created them to be. I think a lot of Christians look around at what we see in our culture, and certainly every June now, we're going to be pounded with it everywhere that we turn, in stores, and television screens, in our, in our workplaces. It's going to be there in our face constantly, and Christians look at that and wonder what is going on, and how did it all come to be that way? Well, it didn't happen overnight, and there's a lot that can be said about that, but existentialism is a big part of that answer. Existence precedes essence. How is it that our culture has become so comfortable with the thousands of babies that are murdered every day in their mother's womb? How has it become a, a talking point to squabble over instead of something to celebrate life and to weep over the loss of it. Instead of acknowledging that a baby is a baby from the moment of conception and not a blob of tissue or a clump of cells. But if what I do precedes who I am, we can conceive in ourselves that we're not murdering children before they're born because they haven't done anything. Therefore, they aren't anything. You see, the, the consequences of our ideas are monumental. 
And what may seem like a, a harmless idea when presented as you can be whatever you want to be, there are actually far-reaching implications. I'm guessing Sartre didn't expect his philosophy to be what it is today. However, it has captured our culture's hearts and minds and is one of the primary driving forces behind the moral revolution that is going on all around us. Today, people actually think it's a rational thing to say things like, all identity is incoherent and unsustainable. All identity is constructed. No one has an essential nature. No one has a being they have to be true to so you can be anything you want to be because anything has meaning in and of itself. There are parents now that are calling their newborn babies babies because they want them to decide what their sex is going to be as they grow instead of talking to them as their little boy or their little girl. If all identity is constructed, then the individual decides. There's nothing objective, not even biological reality. Now, of course, Christianity has always taught the exact opposite. Of course, on some level, what you do influences who you are. But first and foremost, Christianity says what you are must be honored. You cannot escape what God made you to be. You being who you are is an inescapable reality. To say otherwise is to say that you have no essential design, that you have no essential nature that you must honor. But Christianity says you were created with this essential design and it's your job to understand that and to walk in that as God intended. And when you understand that work of God, and when you walk in that design, you'll find your true self. You see, all of these other things, every, everything I'm setting my heart on because I've been told I can do whatever I want to do and be are actually a distraction. They're a departure from reality. The reality that I am, what God has made me to be, and my goals should be driven by how he has designed me, how he has gifted me, how he has, has done what he has done to prepare me for a specific purpose for his glory and for the good of others. The heart of a natural man doesn't like that. Because it, it removes the mirage of self-autonomy. It removes the false notion that I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul. Natural man detests the idea that even though he, he's, what are you, five foot tall <laughs> and a slow runner and can't jump, <laughs> that even if he works all day, every day at being great at basketball, he's never going to be in the NBA. For the committed existentialist, the, the only thing that's really wrong is telling someone that they're not right. But as Christians, something we learn and something we discover as we walk with Christ and pursue our purpose in Him is that when we live as we're designed and when we are able to use our gifts as they have been given to us, the purpose that we are searching for is being found. And it isn't primarily in our career or our education, but it's all-encompassing of everything that God is doing in our lives. It's all about the totality of life and who we are and what we are doing for the kingdom of God. 
Now, just, just prior to verse 10 in Ephesians 2, in verses 1 through 9, the Apostle Paul provides a comprehensive review of God's work of salvation. It's quite basic, but it's also incredibly profound. And if you, if you don't make a practice of memorizing Scripture, I want to encourage you, these 10 verses are worth spending the time to memorize. And taken all together, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, explains what a Christian is and how they came to be. There's a progression that Paul works out from what we were before we were in Christ to what we are after Christ and how God made us to be in Christ. And then what we'll be focusing on in verse 10, because of what we are in Christ. When God changes our hearts, when he gives us the gift of faith by his grace, we now have a responsibility. We now have an obligation to walk in what we are created to be. We don't do what we do, and therefore we are what we are. No, Paul very explicitly tells us that what we are in Christ as Christians, and as a result of being in Christ, he tells us what we are called to do. Paul shows us that there is a being that is a more important thing than our doing. If you're going to do good works, then there has to be a change in your nature. If you're going to be a person of compassion, God has to give you a nature of compassion. If you're going to be a person like Christ, God has to give you a nature like Christ. And thank God that he does. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Well, before we get into verse 10, it's important to highlight the importance of what Paul lays out here and the order that he lays it out, excuse me, specifically as it's outlined in verses 8 through 10. There's, there's three elements he shows us. Those are grace, faith, and works. And this is the order that we must see them in. And to mix that order up in any way is to get the order all wrong and it will completely undermine and distort the gospel to where you have no gospel at all. Grace, faith, and works in that order. 
No other order works. You cannot have true saving faith without grace, and you cannot have good works that are pleasing to God without faith. If you try to, to do works to receive grace, you don't understand grace, and you've turned the gospel into something that is earned by works. If you can have faith before you have grace, then salvation is not ultimately the work of a sovereign God, but it's God's, it's God's response to man's actions. So you see, without the proper order, you don't have the gospel. It's grace, then faith, and then works. There's no other options. So Paul shows us that if you have saving faith in Christ, it comes by grace alone. And if you have saving faith, you will find rest in Christ, and this progression is from death to life. We see how a person becomes a Christian. And so now in verse 10, Paul is answering the question, what does it mean that I'm a Christian, and what will I do as a result? And so he shows us, firstly, that if you have saving faith, you are God's workmanship. Notice the structure of Paul's statement. He points, his point is this, you have been saved. And as one who has been saved, you are God's workmanship. He's building here layer upon layer upon layer. Paul is masterful at this. He does it better than any other writer in scripture. Now this word workmanship is really beautiful as it describes what God has done. It's a word from which the English word uh, poem comes from. The literal meaning is, is something that has been made, or it's a work, or a making. It's used in various uh, Greek writings to describe either a poem, or a statue, or a song, or a beautiful piece of architecture, or a painting, something like that. So on the whole, I, I really like the way one commentator translates this uh, to, to capture what Paul is getting, getting after here. He writes that Paul is saying that we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. Just pause and think about that. The master artist who created the most beautiful things your eyes could ever see and realities that you could ever behold and beyond to stretches of galaxies we don't even know exist. You are his work of art. God is the creator. Nothing exists apart from him. He brought everything into being. He holds it all together. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system, the galaxies, it's all the handiwork of God. And yet, as amazing and as breathtaking as the cosmos is, it is not his greatest masterwork. Nature is constantly and consistently showing forth the glory of God. You ever, you ever take time to sit outside in the quiet and take it all in? I like to sit outside when it's quiet and consider God's handiwork. I love to look at the skies and, and, the, and the trees and just reflect on the intricate design of everything around me as I feel the air against my face and I, and I smell creation. I smelled creation as soon as I got off the plane here, by the way. It's a different smell of creation. <laughs> but nature, all of nature breathes the glory of God. 
I like, to, I like to go now that I live close to a beach. I like to go to the beach. No one else is around and just take in the sea air and listen to the waves crash and, and feel the wind blow. Have you ever seen anything like the, the Grand Canyon or, or a vast mountain range or Niagara Falls and, and you're there and you're looking at this and it just, it, you have no words to describe it. It takes your breath away. Or have you ever contemplated the vastness of the ocean and it's completely boggled your mind? Or have you ever considered how small the earth is in comparison to, to other planets and many of the stars and the moons in our own galaxy? It's utterly fascinating. It is beautiful. It is stunning. It is breathtaking. It is incomprehensible. But none of that is God's masterwork. Consider something even greater, a newborn human baby. They come out of the womb, little gray shriveled prunes, and all of a sudden their eyes open, their mouth is wide, there's instant crying, their arms are reaching out, the apex of God's creation. An amazing mind that all of a sudden it's taking in information every second from the beginning of life. Everything that newborn baby experiences is being processed and funneled through the eyes and through their minds. And 125 million nerve endings are firing simultaneously all within a millisecond. And, and their ears and their, their hearing, their, their skin is feeling, their nose is smelling. But, but even greater than this is the reality reality that each and every single human being from the moment they are created is created in the image of God. He or she now not only has a body but an everlasting soul. That newborn child has, despite its sin nature, a delicate moral sensibility and a creative ability and is filled with potential and possibilities. St. Augustine said, men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without even wondering. Mankind is without a doubt the apex of God's creation. No angel or cherubim or seraphim could rival man because no angel or cherubim or seraphim is made in the image of God. And yet, we can even go beyond this. As wondrous and as beautiful as mankind is, created in the image of God, mankind in general is not even the, the masterwork that Paul is writing about here as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The greatest, the most magnificent, the highest, the most ultimate workmanship of God is the man or the woman or the child who despite being dead in transgressions and sins has been made alive together with Christ by grace through faith. 
Think about any any one of us who has undergone that transformation. A true Christian is one who is actually the subject of two creations by Christ. Our very existence is a result of the work of Christ. Colossians 1 tells us that. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and all things in him hold together. Every human being that has ever lived is created and held together by Christ. But the master work has undergone a second creation In Christ Jesus. Christ, the Lord of all creation, is also the worker of salvation. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and behold, the new has come. This is far greater than Mount Everest. Or the Mariana Trench, it is far more significant than the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. It is far more beautiful than any sunset on every tropical location on the planet. It is far more captivating and breathtaking than the furthest reaches of outer space. The Father decreed it, the Son accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. It is a Trinitarian work. It is not because God needed it. It's not because God was lonely and wanted some friends. He has been eternally content and pleased in and of himself. But he loves what he made. He delights in his creation. And he did it for us and for his glory. Why? Because God so loved the world. And so the ultimate, maximum, highest, greatest, most magnificent of all of God's work and all of creation is is man made alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, as the subjects of Christ's two creations, we are his ultimate workmanship, his masterpiece, his masterwork, and he has made us that way to be the bride of Christ. You can search the universe over high and low and you will not find a more beautiful reality than that. And friend, if you are not a Christian, you have been created in the image of God. But I pray that God will recreate you that you will have a second birth, that you would be made like Christ. By the grace of God, you can have a new heart. You can have a new life in Christ. Even though the image of God in you is fractured, you still know that God is who he says he is. And all of creation that I've talked about, that you've observed, that you've witnessed your entire life, it, it is proclaiming his existence and his excellence and his creative power and ability. And so while you may suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, you know he is who he is. You know him profoundly. And you know that you are ultimately responsible to him. 
But the good news is that even though you are apart from Christ, even though you are, as the Bible says, an enemy of God, the same God you push against, the same God you you rebel against and fight and shake your fist at, he has made a way for you to draw near. Put all of your hope in Jesus Christ. He lived a life to fulfill the law you're required to fulfill, but you can't. He died a death you deserve to to die, so you don't have to. He was raised from the dead so that you might live. And by grace, through faith, you can find true rest and purpose and joy and meaning in life as a new creation. Turn to Christ, repent of your sin, and find life. Now, some of us as Christians, we we may... actually doubt the reality of our being God's workmanship because we're weighed down with guilt and we're constantly focusing on the reality of this flesh that we live in surrounded by a fallen world. We doubt our worth. We we doubt the reality of what we are in Christ. But we have to believe what God has told us. In Christ, we are of untold worth. We are his work of art. We we are his, his constant work of art. He's making us to look more and more like the sun. He's sculpting and then painting and then writing our story and calling us to live by that day by day. And so brothers and sisters, we are in the hands of the great maker, the ultimate sculptor who created the universe out of nothing, and he has never thrown away a rock on which he began his masterwork. His tools are his word and, and prayer and the gathering of the saints and, and baptism and the Lord's Supper, and each and every day he's, he's picking up that chisel and, and he's picking up his paintbrush and he's picking up his pencil and he's, he's designing and, and he's, he's making and molding and perfecting until he determines that the work is done and we pass on from this life into the next, into complete glory. And if you are in Christ, you are God's workmanship and, and, and that, brothers and sisters, is amazing news that he continues to craft you until he has completed you. And being God's workmanship, it it has implications in in how we love and serve and live together with one another in this world and and in our communities and in our homes and in the church. Let's think of one example. Think of what it means in light of this to be a Christian friend. What kind of meaning does this take on when you want to be someone's friend? It means that you know that your Christian friend is someone that God is turning into a beautiful, magnificent masterpiece. Something of breathtaking beauty. What it means to be a Christian friend is to say, I can see in this person that the beauty of the great things of what God is continually doing. I can see what God is doing in them and through them. And I don't just see what I like about you now. I see the beauty of what God is making you to be. Imagine if we we thought about each other more often in those terms. 
Imagine what it would be like. What would happen? I think we would see a lot of our petty disagreements start to disappear. I think we would see that we're far more patient with one another. I think we would see that our frustrations with each other would start to die off instead of having a mindset that others need to capitulate to our desires and our preference. We would start to say, you know what? I am a work in progress too. The Lord is shaping me like he is shaping you and we aren't there yet. And as long as there is breath in my lungs, the Lord is still working on us. So I don't need to get frustrated with you or bitter with you. There may be a piece of you that the Lord just hasn't chiseled away quite yet. And I might find that irritating. But I can guarantee that there's a piece of me that's just the same for you. So instead of looking at each other and seeing those imperfections and focusing on those and basing our relationship on those, let's look at each other as God's workmanship, as beautiful creations of God's design. Now look, I wish it it wasn't true, but I am going to fail the people that I love from time to time. I'm going to let them down. I'm not going to fulfill all of their expectations of me, even when they might be legitimate and reasonable. The expectations that people have of me as their friend, as, as their husband, as their father, as their pastor, as a Christian... But all of us can say that about one another. And we can all understand that even though that's true, we're in progress. Have you ever watched an artist work on something from start to finish? For the longest time, you really can't quite figure out what exactly is going on, what it's going to be, or if it's actually ever going to look good at all. Or you you can't imagine what the painting or the sculpture is going to look like and whether or not it's something worth admiring. But then as it's coming together in the end, you start to see something beautiful. It didn't look that good for a long time. Then the artist is shading and starting to add in the finer details and it's really standing out and it's really beautiful. And eventually you see this really is a true masterpiece. I can't be the only one who watched Bob Ross on PBS growing up. But that's us. That's what God's doing with us. We're we're the happy little trees. We're taking shape. And all of us get to watch that in one another. And brothers and sisters, we we have to be painted with one another. And if we're thinking as as Christians toward one another, we will begin to see greater patience toward each other. Because we realize that the masterpiece isn't finished in a day or a week or a month or a year. Because it's not a little two-by-two canvas. It's the Sistine Chapel. It takes a lifetime. And so what it means to be a Christian friend, what it means to be a Christian spouse, it means that we can see the development of the splendor of this new masterpiece, this Christian. Because every Christian is being brought by God into a position of being a glorious work of art, a glorious work of his art. 
And so what else does Paul point us to? He shows us that if you have saving faith, you will also have good works. Remember the order. Grace, faith, works. Now, just as important as it is to remember the order and not get it all mixed up in any way, it's also important for us to understand that Christianity is a very concrete thing. In in other words, you can't walk around for five to ten years saying, I have received the grace of God, I have true faith, and then kid yourself if there's no concrete change to your character and your behavior. If grace is present in your life, faith will follow. And if faith is present in your life, you are God's workmanship. And if you are God's workmanship, you will do good works. Another way we can say this is that there are two things Paul tells us that always result from grace and faith. One, you become God's workmanship. And two, as a result of being his workmanship, you walk in good works. You see how that differs dramatically from the existential idea I explained to you? You see, Christianity teaches the exact opposite. Remember, that philosophy says your actions determine your being. What you do determines who you are and what you are. And Christianity says who and what you are determines what you will do. Being precedes action. And so if you're going to do good works, you have to become God's workmanship. God has to do something to you and in you. He has to give you a new nature. But that means that if you're a Christian, you're constantly changing. You're growing. You're not staying as irritable as you used to be. You're not staying as anxious as you used to be. You're not staying as bitter as you used to be. You're not as prideful or arrogant or as impatient or hot-headed as you used to be. You are changing. You cannot get out from under this when you're in Christ. And if there is no progress, and you're a Christian, then you need to consider whether or not you are resting in the things that Christ died for. He didn't just die to make you feel lovely. He bled for your splendor. He bled for your holiness. He bled so that you would be without blemish. You have to be reminding yourself every day, God wants me to be holy. He wants me to know him. He wants me to commune with him. He wants me to see that it is more and more possible when I am more and more committed to holiness and utilizing all of the means of his grace in my life. And here's something else. If if God is the sculptor and you are the marble, That means that there will be times in your life, and maybe for some of you it's right now, that he's going to come at you with a really big chisel. It means every single thing that God is bringing into your life, even though it looks like he's knocking it off of you, and you thought it was actually part of the master design, if God knocks it away, you can be assured that you didn't need it for you to be what God wants you to be. You insist, I have to have that. I need that thing. But the artist says, no, if I don't knock that off, you'll never see the beauty of my design. And this is the providence of God. All of the troubles, all of the difficulties, all of the suffering in your life, these are his chisel. 
And that's hard for us in so many ways because this is why God tells us so often in the scriptures, don't be afraid. Why? Why? Because under all of that is something beautiful. You may not see it now. It may be painful. It may even be miserable. You may think there's no end in sight, but it's there. He has some things that he wants to do, some, some shading, some highlighting, some intricate work that requires a perfectly steady hand and a perfectly placed element of his design. But he's doing it. And then in the moment, day-to-day work, it may seem dreadful at times. You may be like the psalmist and say, where are you, God? What are you doing? but it's all coming together little by little by little. And as he's designing and shaping and molding, he's bringing the good works out of you that he has prepared for you beforehand. Everything, everything that's gone into your life so far, not only the good things, but even the hard things, God, the great artist, has brought them in there to turn you into a unique masterpiece if you are his child. There are people he has purposed for you to help. There are good works that your trials, your experiences, your suffering, and your gifts are uniquely tailored by God for you to do. There are deeds of compassion that require the unique experiences of your life to show. There are people whose lives will be most dramatically impacted, not by my life or your neighbor's life or their best friend's life, but by yours. Why? Because of everything that's gone into your life. Because of every hammer against that chisel. Every stroke of that brush and every line of that pencil. You don't have to be afraid of your past because no matter what it looks like, it was part of God's preparation for you, for the good works he calls you to. Here's the reality. You've never actually had a whole lot to say about much in your life. And especially some of the most important things. You didn't choose your parents. You don't choose the people you grow up with. You don't choose your height. You don't choose your sex. You didn't really choose your IQ or how high it would ultimately go. You didn't choose all of your troubles. You didn't choose your ethnicity. You didn't choose to become a Christian. You don't choose how you will die ultimately. You know, I have a young man in my life. It's going to be hard to tell you this story. His name is James, and he's at the church I used to pastor. And James was 12 years old when he was rescued from the home that he was in. It was discovered that his parents had tortured him and his two siblings their entire lives, locking them in cages, strapping them to the wall, beating them with belts and boards. And ultimately his two siblings were killed by his own parents and buried in their backyard. They let James survive because he had cerebral palsy and they got money from the state to take care of him. And so James was placed in foster care 
and his foster parents were members at the church that I was pastoring. And I got to know James and spend time with him and talk to him about his experiences and thank God he didn't remember most of them. But over a couple of years, I got to continue to talk to him and see him change and to see his disposition grow brighter and brighter and talk to him about the gospel and tell him, James, you are God's workmanship. No matter what, no matter what your parents said or did or what you saw, you were created by God for a purpose and you're beautiful. Don't forget it. And two weeks before I left to go to Florida, I got to baptize James. And he's doing great. And I got to tell him, you know what? That's tough. Most people in this world will never experience something so awful. But even that, even that God can and will use for his glory and for your good and for the good of others, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. It's evil to the core. And yet God will use it. God has purposed something in that for his purposes. The great artist is behind it all, and you don't have to be afraid. If you have grace and faith, you are God's workmanship. That means the challenge is that you have to change. You have to grow. But the comfort in all of that is he is the one in charge. He is turning you into something gorgeous and something valuable, an expression of the being of the artist himself. John Calvin wrote, Paul does not say that God helps us. He does not say that the will is prepared by him and then has to act in its own strength. He does not say that we have been given the ability to choose what is right. Rather, he says that we are God's work and that everything good in us is his creation. This is God's workmanship, not the power to choose what is good, but the right will itself, which he implants in believers. Without God's grace, we are nothing, and even the good works that we do were prepared beforehand by him in advance. And brothers and sisters, many of you do some wonderful things for the kingdom of God. You may not think they're wonderful, but they're wonderful. But knowing what that work is and what it accomplishes for God's glory should humble each and every one of us. Because we know it's not because we were smart or creative or that we showed some enormous amount of ingenuity or creativity to accomplish it. It's all by God's grace, 100%. And it was prepared by God. And it was implanted in us through our experiences and through our gifts and through the Holy Spirit at work to bring us to his great ends. What assurance and comfort that should bring. God has prepared good works for the godly to do so that we may fulfill our calling right up to the very end of our lives. God began a good work in you. He has turned you into his masterpiece and he makes you a person unique in your beauty and your abilities, ready to do the things he has prepared specifically for you to do. Think on that. Be amazed by that. Think, on, think of the joy of that, that you are in the artist's hands 
and examine yourself. If you're not working for his kingdom, what are you waiting for? You have everything you need and you don't have to fear. So stop resisting his chisel. Give yourself to him now. You are his workmanship and he has prepared good works for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the precious truth of your word. We're thankful for the work of the Spirit in the hearts of your people. That you've not only created us in your image, but that you have recreated us in Christ Jesus. And that you continue to work on us and to shape us and to mold us and that even the worst moments of our lives are part of your plan that we would become more like Christ. And so I pray, oh God, that these dear saints of yours would not grow weary, that they would not be anxious, that they would not think that you have abandoned them, but that they would remember your promises, that you are with us even to the end of days, that you love us, And that you don't love us any more or less today than you did the day you created us or you will in 10 million years. That we are your children. And even though we may be embarrassed by ourselves or embarrass others, that you are never embarrassed by your children. That you say, that is my son. That is my daughter. Lord, may we always delight in being your workmanship. And may that delight overflow into the very works that you have created us to do. And may it all be to your glory. May it be to the great end of more and more people that we know and love coming to trust in our dear Savior. And may it be that your church would be strengthened. And may it all be That one day, as we are in glory, as we are able to look at the life that many times we don't understand, we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the chisel. Thank you for the challenges. Because now all that I enjoy in your forever presence is far greater than anything I could have ever hoped or imagined. And so we ask you to do all of these things. In the precious, holy, and great name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.